you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. Now, the architecture profession is still observationally and statistically overrepresented by white, male, middle class, privately educated individuals who have attended prestigious Russell Group universities or independent architecture schools. And what does this mean for the sector and crucially for society? Now, when discussing these issues uh, to hand in our profession, it's really important to pull apart the one of socioeconomic diversity and not to forget the white working class experience. And to discuss this, I'm joined by architect Chris Hildry, the GLA Deputy Mayor of Planning, Regeneration and Skills, Jules Pipe, CBE, architect Philip Watson from HLM and Karen Mosley, uh, Managing Director at HLM. Thank you all very much indeed for joining me. Um, if I can start by asking you, Chris, can, how would you introduce yourself and what's your relationship with class? It's a very good question. Um, I mean, I would always introduce myself just, you know, as an architect, <laughs> really, or architect and designer, I suppose. Um, my experience with class, though, is an interesting one. I mean, um, I was fortunate enough to go to an independent school, but it was a strange experience because my dad taught there, so I got to go for next to nothing. So um, from an early age, I was surrounded by people who had different opportunities than I did. Uh, you know, lots of sort of skiing events I couldn't go to and things like that and then in university I went to Edinburgh University first of all which I think uh, definitely has um, a huge demographic towards the more affluent mm. which is interesting and then uh, after that I went to the Bartlett which uh, again has you know sort of similar mix and and certainly that's that's something I've seen in architecture is is there is a it is definitely a very privileged profession um, which leans heavily in that direction. Thanks, Chris. And, and if I can ask you, Philip, the same question, please. Introduce yourself and what's your relationship with class? Um, how would I mean, I, I don't introduce myself by my class generally. Um, I'm an architect, um, but I am I am working. I come from a working class background. Um, I grew up on a council estate on the east of Birmingham and going to university just wasn't a thing that was on on the agenda really, you know, no one had really heard about it. No one talked about it, not at school, not amongst my family and friends. It was, uh, it just wasn't really an option. So, um, because, you know, and, you know, as we talk about this, I think, you know, it's about, it's about the, those layers, those barriers that present themselves to people from working class backgrounds that prevent, you know, the, the amount of people who uh, went to comprehensive school in the industry. I mean, there was a report that was published um, uh, in September, social mobility in the creative industries. And it found that architecture was dominated by the privileged. You know, in other words, 
Um, about 90% of people in the UK go to a comprehensive school, but they make up only 45% of the architectural profession. So, you know, if you, therefore, if you go to a private school, you're five and a half times more likely to become an architect. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing talking about class because it's very nuanced. You know, I grew up in a in a very supportive, loving kind of kind of nuclear family. There was nothing wrong with that per se. It was just this lack of experience of higher education and awareness of opportunities, lack of funds. Crikey, if if I were eighteen now and I was looking down the barrel of eighty five to ninety thousand pounds worth of of student debt, would I become an architect? Very unlikely. I'll we'll come on to that uh, in a bit. Thank you. Uh, uh, <clears throat> thank you, Philip. Um, Karen, can I ask you, uh, how would you introduce yourself and what's your relationship with the term class? Um, I think, well, generally at the moment, I introduce myself as a managing director of HLM Architects because I'm, I am quite proud of, of the sort of opportunities that I've had and been able to progress to where I have from where I started. So I, I try and use that as well to, to showcase sort of my story, I suppose, which is, I guess, what the purpose of all of this conversation is about. I think in terms of class, um, I think it's something that... Um, we can um we get worried about i mean class to me when i was younger was something quite scary that i didn't think i was in the same um sphere as others and that really eroded my confidence and i think as you grow older and um you learn from the different experiences of others you learn that we've all got quite different things to bring and I think when you can start to break down those barriers, it helps break down the barriers of class that, we, you know, we're all very similar um, in many respects. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was from a working class background um, and um, again, that, that's why I think I'm quite passionate about where we've sort of where I've progressed in my career um, to, to, to be able to help others um, have the confidence and see that there are opportunities for people of a similar background to me to, to progress in the architectural profession. Jules, thanks very much indeed. Jules Pipe, CBE, uh, is the GLA Deputy Mayor for Planning, Regeneration and Skills. Um, if I can ask you a slightly different question, if I may, which is um, how much does class have to play within the idea of regeneration? Um, well, I, I don't think that uh, generally the the uh, you know the sector lo looks in terms looks at it in terms of class. Um, I think uh, it's yes, socioeconomic. Um, uh, the, you know the, the socioeconomic uh, state of a, of a of a of a an urban regeneration initiative is obviously at the heart of 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 what. Uh, um, a, a, you know, that's determining going forward on a on a on a development, but I'm not sure the issue of class as much uh, plays uh, a, a, an immediate role, but it may well be something useful exploring purely as a, an academic exercise if one was uh, one was uh, looking at how uh, uh, these things play out. Coming back to your point, um, Philip, about um, you know the the profession being overwhelmingly people who've had access to, to privilege. Um, yeah. What do you think that means for the profession? 
Well, I mean, ultimately, I think um, I think the profession is is probably losing uh, access to a cohort of very talented, creative people who have a relevant voice to delivering uh, great architecture. You know, we're 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 kind of turning our back on a big pool of of, of talent. Is is the is the bottom line of it, really, isn't it? We're missing out on relevant voices, um, and 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 we're narrowing our field of view in terms of the lived experience of the profession as a whole, and and that and that probably narrows our ability to create great community environments, maybe. I saw you nodding away there, Chris. You, you agree with that that idea? I do. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, it's not only about the sort of taking people's lived experience and putting it into the city, but it's also about um, getting that lived experience and you know I think I think bringing that as some as something that helps shape the city for people who also live that experience in the future. So um, you know I, I think given that the profession is um, certainly has a high proportion of people who may have come from a background of privilege, I think the difficulty is the fact that it that privilege, if you like, kind of persists because of the obstacles that are put in the way um, between somebody who may want to become an architect and, and ultimately becoming an architect. So everything from, you know, long university courses to the kind of clients you need to get. Ultimately, you know, if you're in a position where you can afford a bespoke building, you're either an affluent individual or, or an institution. And so having those relationships is really key. But I think also, you know, when you're looking at at sort of the the privilege of of creating a space, we need to remind ourselves that architecture is not you know it's it's not a a private endeavor. Whenever you undertake a piece of architecture, it you you are designing for the client, but you're also imposing something into the public. And in that sense, I think architecture has a duty to to uh, engage with the people who live with the consequences of that. And mm. that, and that's best done if you have people who who understand how critical that that imposition can be. If I can come to you, Jules, just uh, uh, before before the track there, Chris was talking about, you know, spaces needing to be informed by a diversity of people. So what what are you trying to do to address this particular um, element of, of, of planning and, and making sure the spaces in London is as, as inclusive as, as they could possibly be? Mm. Well, I mean, at City Hall, we think it's absolutely crucial, you know, that those people who are shaping and and designing London really do represent the diversity of, of London's communities. And as we just heard earlier, often that isn't the case. Um, women sorely underrepresented. I think it's only about 32% of architects' jobs in the, in the last uh, uh, survey uh, that I saw. Uh, and that's actually down from around 2008 when it was up at 40%, so it's going in the wrong direction. Um, uh, you know, BAME architects continue to experience discrimination in the workplace, along with LGBTQ plus architects um, as well. Too few disabled architect, uh, architecture students, uh, uh, you know, are successfully progressing uh, and progressing their careers and, and finding uh, long term uh, placements. And we think that, um, you know, that underrepresentation um, damages the, the development um, uh, of London. It undermines um, all our efforts to achieve what we call good growth, you know, growth that's socially and economically inclusive and environmentally 
uh, sustainable. And, you know, architects, I think, are just so crucial, you know, playing a strategic role in, in shaping the city. Um, you know, they translate the needs of people from all walks of life and backgrounds um, into, our, into our built forms. So we really have to all work harder to make sure that they reflect the makeup of the people that they represent. So, but what what can you, in in your role, do to try to encourage that? Do you think? Well, we've um, we uh, a couple of years ago we launched uh, the Good Growth by Design program, um, and that promotes quality and inclusion across the built environment in everything that we do, providing guidance and design review and advocacy. But a major part of the program is dedicated uh, to EDI in the built environment, and it's one of the program's six uh, pillars. Um, and it's a really call to everyone engaged in London's architectural um, and built environment professions to, you know, help realise the mayor's vision um, for, for good growth. So we've got a whole series um, of projects. One of the biggest one was the Supporting Diversity Handbook that we uh, produced. And I urge anyone who hasn't heard of it to go online onto our website and, and see it. Um, I was really pleased that Reva itself um, adopted it as part um, of its uh, uh, core uh, materials. Um, and, and that really uh, is, is structured around the different stages of an architect's um, education and, and career and provides resources uh, and help for each stage. But it's not just for architects. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's translatable across all sorts of uh, built environment um, uh, professions. And we're undertaking a whole series of specific actions as well and, and activities. Um, you know, we've got the architecture and urbanism framework. Um, uh, so it's the new um, uh, panel um, for uh, procurement. Uh, so uh, we're ensuring that all the business, all the practices that will be on that panel, sort of those call off contracts for the public sector and other people who use that, that framework, um, we're ensuring that it's far more representative of those um, who live and work in London rather than, um, you know, the current makeup of the, of the profession. Um, uh, thank you for that. And I, uh, I think procurement is a really major part of, of how we can encourage uh, diversity and inclusion within the profession, because the money is always where it's uh, where it starts. Um, Karen, if I can ask you as well about, you know, the work that's being done at HLM to encourage uh, a diverse and inclusive um, uh, experience, but also uh, in terms of encouraging a diversity of people to join the firm. What, what are you doing to try to to create change there? Um, yeah, I think you've you've hit that. We, we, we're sort of taking a two pronged approach to this. Um, you know, we've, we're obviously focusing on our own business and what we're doing internally so um you know the, the sort of um the events that unfolded last year in term made us think more about what, what the support sort of groups that we had internally and we created a diversity inclusion and belonging group which i uh, sit as lead on that um and champion that at board level um you know, we've, 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 we're reviewing our recruitment strategy in terms of we've invested in a new recruitment platform to make sure that uh, we're, we're reaching out to the widest network, but also in terms of how we assess um, applications. Um, we're doing training internally and raising awareness. Um, what we're trying to do as well is, I think, 
the, my main focus because of where I came from. I came through the youth training scheme when I was 17 as an apprentice. So I'm really passionate about the apprenticeship um, route. Um, we were part of the Trailblazer group and um, coming from being in the north I'm trying to make sure we're trying to level up that opportunity and um, in Sheffield I'm delighted to say we're probably now going to have level six and level seven running so we're going into schools and we've got a program that uh, backtracks all the way back to age five working with the RIV and their schools ambassador program but creating this pathway sprinkling you know um, ideas at that really early age because apparently by the age of seven people have already determined what they can't do so what we're trying to do is showcase um, through um, role modeling and our outreach program um, feeder schools primaries that feed through to secondary secondaries through to sixth form then showcase the apprenticeship route so that we can try to widen um, the pipeline create more diversity um, because there's only so much that we can do internally um, it's our pipeline you know when we're looking at it the sort of unblocking of those barriers for people entering and I, you know the apprenticeship is really fundamental to that um, it can really help to mm. unlock that potential that's sitting within our cities um, yeah, I mean, Philip, you, you know, th that apprenticeship scheme, it, it could be the key because you mentioned that you would, if you had to enter architecture today, you may not have because of the amount it costs to become an architect these days. But apprenticeships may well be a different way forward into the profession. Yeah, absolutely, Marcia. I mean, like Karen, I actually stumbled my way into the architecture profession through the youth training scheme uh, in the early 80s. I had no idea what architecture was or anything. I just stumbled into this thing where I ended up uh, printing drawings and making the tea in an architect's office and seeing that actually, look, you could draw and make a living out of it. And that really resonated with me. I mean, I, I did end up going to a, a Russell Group University, but, um, but it was only through that training apprenticeship that I you know, got access to the opportunity, if you like, became aware of it. So, um, and, and, and of course, the, um, the funding uh, kind of landscape has completely changed since my day. I mean, I got a full grant and there were no, and there were no fees, you know, going to university. That was the most money I ever had when I went to university. Uh, whereas, whereas now it, that's very different, of course. And I think, you know, that 85, 90K um, barrier to becoming uh, an architect is daunting. It's absolutely daunting. And if you're from a, a working class background, that's going to put you off. It really is. Um, and, and I think, this, you know, this. I'm, I'm going to ramble off the subject here, but there is, a, there is this thing that really bugs me in this profession where, where people from middle class privileged backgrounds think that getting into architecture, the architecture profession, is just life's a meritocracy. You know, if you're good, you'll, you'll succeed. And, you know, lots of good people do succeed, but it's, the, it's these barriers that present themselves to people from underprivileged backgrounds that they just that privileged people just don't 
don't uh, experience. And I, I think there needs to be more understanding of those barriers by those people. And thankfully, that's what Reba Radio is for. <laughs> Chris, you, you're nodding away <clears throat> there. You know, we're trying to bring this understanding about, you know, actually this, the, the reality of lives of people who may want to, may not even know that architecture is mm. a possibility for them. It just closed off. I mean, what, what, what are your views on not only what Philip said, but how we can move forward as a profession here? Well, I, th- I think Phil's exactly right when he talks about the, sort of the dangers of, of the view of meritocracy, because, you know, when you when you perceive something to be a meritocracy, it almost um, escapes it from the opportunities of chance and luck and, you know, being born into a certain environment. And people do suffer as a result of, you know, their, their backgrounds. And, and I think... You know, you just have to look at the profession today and, you know, whether it is the, the fees that you have to pay today or, you know, the persistence of unpaid internships, for example. There are all these obstacles that do sit in the way between somebody who may be interested in architecture and, and practicing architecture. And and ultimately, I think, um, you know, one of, the, one of the difficulties that architecture faces is the fact that most people don't really perceive themselves as having some kind of agency or voice within that. You know, I mean, I was was similar to Phil. I kind of got quite lucky and stumbled into architecture because I liked the things that were involved in the course rather than architecture, for example. You know, when I went to university in first year and somebody told me they have a favourite building, I was perplexed by that. (laughs) It was a whole new concept to me. Um, But I think to most people, as it was to me, you know, most people see the built environment as, you know, being made of, stone and steel and 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 being a very static thing and it's only really once you've gone through that training you see how much of a of a of a thing in flux it is and actually there is a lot of opportunity to shape it but for your average person on the street you know at, at most they might see a notice posted on a lamppost before something large happens and or a piece of community consultation um which you know also stands to have some improvement in it um mm. So I, I think engaging people is not only about removing the obstacles for people who want to become engaged, but also making people aware that being engaged is something, you know, that is, is very much an opportunity that's there. Um, so I think we need to lower the drawbridge and invite people in um, and do both of those things at the same time. Um, if I can come to you, um, Jules, uh, you know, how can how can we measure uh, you know whether we're making progress around socioeconomic diversity uh, in terms of you know the way the GLA might engage with the built environment. Well, I think it's absolutely crucial that you know it's it's the first step that we can take in getting this right and having the built environment sector more reflective of the society it serves by getting the data right. Um, it is the first step, and that's why um, uh, we've convened the six built environment professional institutes. Um, And we've got that shared aim to work together um, towards a built environment sector with equity and inclusion absolutely at at its core. And what's it doing? Uh, uh, First off, it's focusing on creating consistency across uh, data collection. Um, You know, we've got everyone to acknowledge that having that clear and reliable data on the makeup of the wider sector is that crucial, important first step towards making meaningful uh, change. And there's also a really shared commitment to focus on on training and embedding um, EDI in in what the built environment sector sector does. So I'm really pleased that the six big institutes um, are, are on board with that. 
And and just for the record, the RIBA and indeed me, <laughs> I am involved with that. You, you <laughs> are. You absolutely are. It's uh, Reba's there, the RTPI, um, Institute of Civil Engineers, uh, the surveyors are there. Um, Chartered Institute of Building and the Landscape Institute. Those are the, those are the six six key uh, professional institutes that are around the table. Um, Philip, what would you like oh. to see happen around socioeconomic diversity? What in in utopia, in <laughs> our world of dreams, where we are working towards <laughs> it? We are working towards it. You know, yeah. what would socioeconomic diversity looks like? What in in architecture in the built environment? Well, if we're going to go full full metal jacket utopia, it would be free access to education for all. Mm. But I don't think we're quite there yet, are we? Um, I think I think there's you know there's some there's some easier easier wins. Um, I think we need to raise aspirations in schools. Um, you know, we need to fund schools properly. You know, even even the education the Department for Education's own report in June of this year said the funding gap between state and private schools has doubled in the last 10 years. Okay, there's another barrier. You know, it's mm. just it's just uh, layer upon layer. So we need to fund schools properly. Um, we need to give better advice and information in schools. You know, poor advice from teachers and careers advisors really held people back in my day. Uh, there's this... In, in, in poorer areas, there's a real push for vocational and non-academic careers, and we've got to really challenge that. Um, and, you know, so financial support, familiarising poorer communities with higher education, creating new pathways into the profession in the way that Karen was describing. I think these are the, these are the things that we can do right now. Um, but you know the big one, as you've as you've already identified, Marcia, is it's all about the money in the, at the end of the day, isn't it? You know, and it, and if we can get better access to, to higher education for people from poorer backgrounds, then that that's what will really change matters. Karen, uh, you you've got these schemes in place. You're working with schools. Um, you, you, you're quite passionate about this area. What do you hope will come of those schemes, and what are your timeframes and timelines? Um, well, probably the timeline might be longer than I might be in the profession, but um, but that's what we've got to work on. You know, we've got we we can. We can drive, as Philip and I are directors in our business, we can drive things within our business and a culture of inclusivity, belonging, you know, and, and diversity. Um, but we can only work with pipeline as well that's coming through. And so this is a long, slow burn <laughs> of an initiative. Um, but I think we, there's so many organisations that are doing so many brilliant things with schools. But I think it's 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 actually getting into the system, it's making sure that those interactions are really powerful and meaningful. So it's aligning what we do with curriculum so that we're almost embedded from day one, you know, in the learning process so that, you know, architecture and lots of other professions that aren't spoken about so widely are there right at the start. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think that's that's a major thing. I think we have got you know, to a certain extent, a free and accessible route now to architecture. 
Um, and we just, you know, there's, we need to see more uptake by universities for running uh, level six, particularly, there's a funding issue there that we, we, the group, the trailblazer group, have been addressing. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. We, I can go into schools now and really showcase this, and we want to see that in every, every city, if possible, because that will really break down the barriers, raise. I mean, the aspirations are quite high in some schools. We, we often talk about raising aspirations aspirations are there they're just not being unlocked and that's the duty I mean th there's there's a duty for us to push up to government and try to make national change which we we you know we have got voices in that area but it's the duty upon us perhaps the perceived privileged that use that to then unlock those barriers so let's you know that's employers and having you know having a real commitment to schools and doing that Chris, how do you unlock aspirations, do you think? Um, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, to my mind, I think there's, there's kind of three, three areas which I think we can, we can help things uh, along. One is um, that transition into university. I mean, it's already been discussed about, you know, going into schools and, you know, because architecture is not something that is, is taught explicitly in schools. Um, but I think especially from people who maybe come from poor backgrounds and things that, that the ability to mentor or, or coach people into architecture, what it is. Uh, there's a great uh, organization called Arts Emergency uh, that helps people from underprivileged backgrounds move into the arts. So um, more stuff like that, I think, is great. Then I think through the educational journey, um, I think doing everything you can to... To, to sort of lessen the gap between the haves and have-nots, if you like. So um, I mentioned um, unpaid internships earlier, which I think can be a massive discrepancy between those who can afford to do that and those who can't. Um, the RBA has done good work in clamping down on that for chartered practices. Um, personally, I think, you know, it's hard to clamp down on that entirely from, from the top down. If, if anything, I think it would be nice to see it almost inverted so that if you want to record any time on your PDRs towards your part three, you have to show that you were paid. So if it like almost sort of take away the demand for mm -hmm. unpaid internships. Um, but also I think it's about when you actually get into practice and that's more challenging because then you're talking about real world environment where, you know, networks matter, clients matter, um, who you know matters. And that's harder to actually uh, balance. So what, I, what I've tried to do with that is, is, is to approach architecture in a way in which it doesn't necessarily result in, in, in a building as the end result. And I think actually diversification of the profession is, is something that is potentially a way to open opportunities to those who don't necessarily have access to the people who have the capital for a building. So architecture imbues you with this huge array of skills and a huge array of tools that you can actually do things to change the built environment. And it doesn't always have to be a building. So um, in my case, it was a project called Proxy Address, where it was about um, changing the the way that the built environment works for those who are excluded from it, namely those people who are facing homelessness. Um, and that's something where, you know, if I was looking down the barrel of um, of just practicing architecture for buildings, I'd be looking at, well, we need to build the housing for people who are homeless, right? And that's decades worth of work. And in the meantime, today, tomorrow, the next day, more and more people are becoming homeless. So this is a way to use that architectural education to short circuit that almost and actually go directly to the people who could stand to benefit. Mm. So in terms of actually um, creating an aspiration for even those people who might have used that space, you know, how can you 
start to build that, do you think, in, in them? I mean, an, an aspiration um, in terms of, you know, an aspiration to, to engage with the built environment, I think you have to show agency, um, if that's what you mean. Yeah, um, yeah I, th I think you need to demonstrate to people that there can be agency. Um, I mean, <laughs> I remember I once did a project as a collaboration with an artist called Matthew Derbyshire, where we, um, we, we sort of took over a gallery and um, we wanted to do an exhibition that would get people engaged with um, some of the questionable architecture that was going up in advance of the 2012 games in London. And we were kind of perplexed as to how a lot of this developer work was being you know pushed up at quite a quite a rate so we did this installation where we pretended we were going to demolish the gallery wrapped it in hoarding and presented what we could only describe as the worst building we could ever design it was quite an interesting design exercise and when it came to opening night you know we were hoping that people would come up and grab us by the lapels we invited all the neighbors and everything but in in fact you know on the hoarding it showed that on the ground level there was a tesco and everyone was just really excited to be getting a tesco so right. actually the project was a complete failure but what was really interesting is what it revealed about mm. people people's attitudes towards bad architecture actually mm. it was about it was more about the immediate impact for them rather than the questionable space design and i think if you're going to get people to move beyond that immediate impact and look at the the legacy of a, of a project you need to enable them with the agency to have a voice in that process um jules that that point about agency and, and voice really important and and i'm sure you feel that you've got a role to play there how do you give people agency yeah, well, I mean, we're certainly keen to start um, engaging with young people and getting them um, in, into the process. The mayor's teamed up with um, George Clark's uh, education charity, Moby, um, and we're um, launching a, a design challenge to young Londoners um, between the ages of 11 and, and 24. And we want to see them um, prepare a master plan for the, for the Royal Docks. Um, and uh, through this process, they'll learn more about the range of built environment careers. They'll get access to the mayor's uh, design advocates and there'll be workshops uh, and all sorts of events. So that's certainly how we'd like to get more interest in, in, uh, from younger people in the sector. But I do uh, agree with Karen that you can't start too early. And I, and I say this more with my skills hat on than my built environment hat on. Um, I think that not, not absolutely not to try and trammel people into choosing careers early at primary school, but quite the opposite, to, to, to demonstrate to, to, to really young kids the, the kind of huge range of possibilities that exist out there and get them thinking from a young age that they can spend the rest of their ed education career um, thinking about the, the, you know, what they might do when they're, they're 18, 21 and, 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 and beyond. I would say, though, um, about the sort of creating the pipeline, um, whilst that's absolutely vital and we've got to put a lot of effort into that, um, there is actually already, you know, people coming out through the existing pipeline that aren't getting a, a fair deal. Um, there are plenty of um, uh, women, young women architects. There are plenty of um, BAME architects who are, are being overlooked. So as well as ensuring that we improve the pipeline, we've got to make sure at the end of that pipeline that there are the opportunities. So I'll come back to my point about procurement frameworks and making sure that they are fair and accessible uh, for everybody. 
And certainly, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic diversity is an intersectional um, place, you know, especially underrepresented racialized groups are, are um, you know, disproportionately affected by uh, socioeconomics. Um, Philip, if I may give you the, the final word um, and uh, it, with regard to, you know, that agency piece and, and giving young people and uh, a voice from from those uh, socioeconomic disadvantaged groups, what what would you like them to hear from you? Oh, crikey! Um, I think I think the it's all it's all about opportunity. Everything we've been talking about here today is about opportunity and and improving awareness. You know, and in a way, it's easier to talk about ethnicity and gender and age and disability and sexual orientation. These things are, are quite prominent. But, you know, the C word, class, is it's quite a difficult and nuanced topic. Um, you know, I'd like to hear I'd like to hear some really strong regional accents in in quite powerful and prominent positions for once you know that that that's when I'd start to feel like right, yeah here's here's some agency you know here's someone who sounds like me in a powerful and prominent position that's okay um there's my role model well, Philip, we look forward to your uh, nomination for president for the RIVA coming up soon. <laughs> Architects Chris Hildry, Philip Watson, GLA Deputy Mayor for Planning, Regeneration and Skills, Jules Pipe, CBE, and Karen Mosley, Managing Director at HLM Architects. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. 